Okay, so remember that in the early years of psychology, and by that I mean, you know, first half of the 20th century or so, um, we had two major approaches. Uh, the psychodynamic approach that was picking up steam in um, Europe, uh, and the behavioral approach that was being developed and expanded in the United States. Um, the behavioral approach, um, you know, was really founded by John Watson, an American psychologist, uh, but the, um, the, uh, uh, foundations for the behavioral approach came from some earlier stuff. Um, uh, work by Ivan Pavlov, a Russian physiologist, and E.L. Thorndike, who was an American. <laughs> I didn't know that when I recorded the last podcast, or I think I was confusing him with Havelock Ellis, who doesn't even come up in this course. But anyway, uh, I think I might have said he was British, but I wasn't sure. Uh, Il Thorndike was an American. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Pavlov did um, uh, research that formed the foundation of what we now call classical conditioning or um, Pavlovian conditioning, or sometimes called uh, respondent conditioning. Those are all the same thing. Uh, and um, uh, Thorndike did the foundation work for what we now refer to as operant conditioning, right? So let's start with Pavlov. And uh, if you're following along with uh, Professor Mike's slides that are posted on Blackboard, um, I'm picking up on slide number 21, uh, behavioral approaches. So Ivan Pavlov. <clears throat> Pavlov was a Russian physiologist. He wasn't a psychologist. He wasn't that I know of particularly interested in psychology, but it seems like he was a pretty good scientist because he was studying one thing and he noticed something else really interesting and started to pursue that instead. What he started studying was digestive reflexes in dogs. Um, <clears throat> apparently in Pavlov's time, there was some controversy about what was the stimulus that triggered the digestive response, that is, uh, release of digestive enzymes and stuff like that, uh, to digest food. Um, apparently people were, um, or physiologists at least, were arguing about whether or not it was the presence of food actually in the stomach that triggered that response, or merely the presence of the food in the mouth that triggered that um, uh, response. So he knew what the response was, right? Digestion. He was looking for what was the stimulus. And um, to study this, he was looking at uh, his... Uh, his lab animal that he was using was dogs. And so he was measuring secretions in their stomach and stuff. And as you probably figured out, he, it didn't take him very long at all, I don't think, to figure out that all he had to do was put food in the dog's mouth and it would start um, the digestive response in his stomach so that the food didn't even have to go down there. Anyway, so I think he solved that question pretty quickly. Um, but what he noticed in doing so was that whenever the person who normally brought the dog food in, and he was using like a dehydrated meat powder, uh, dehydrated meat, um, whenever that person entered the room, the dogs would start to salivate. And since he recognized that salivation was part of that digestive response, he said, well, something interesting is going on here. Um, because usually the presence of food in the dog's mouth is going to cause the digestive response. But here we've got dogs who are starting a digestive response before food even comes into uh, physical contact with them. <clears throat> and, um, and it's only these dogs uh, who have learned this through experience. And all this is important because Pavlov was looking at this in terms of reflex, right? And a reflex physiologically is a stimulus response relationship. We've got a stimulus that leads to a response. 
<clears throat> now, excuse me. Um, now, physiologically, we've got a lot of different kinds of reflexes. Some of them are simple, like a like a stretch reflex that you know, if the doc doctor were to tap just below your knee, uh, you know, your leg would kick up or whatever. That's a pretty simple reflex. We've got complex reflexes like a fight or flight response or an orientation reflex. Uh, a lot of different things like that. Anyway, but there's a stimulus and a response. What Pavlov was looking at then is the possibility or the likelihood that these dogs had learned a new reflex building on top of their existing or old reflex. The existing reflex was um, uh, you put food in the dog's mouth and it causes the dog to salivate. Now, what these dogs had learned, though, is as soon as a person walks in the room, then you start to salivate. But they only learn that through experience. And so it was necessary for Pavlov to distinguish two different kinds of stimuli and responses. And so he used the words conditioned and unconditioned. And um, what, he, what he meant by this was that an unconditioned stimulus and an unconditioned response are the naturally occurring reflex. Um, an unconditioned stimulus normally leads to an unconditioned response. That's like putting uh, meat powder in the dog's mouth and the dog salivates. That's built into a dog. You don't have to teach a dog that. It comes with the basic dog 1.0 package. No upgrades, right? <clears throat> um, and that, uh, so that's the unconditioned or unlearned reflex. But these dogs had learned a new reflex. Uh, that was based upon that. And so he had to call this a new thing, a learned reflex or a conditioned reflex. So that gives us a conditioned stimulus that leads to a conditioned response. And in this case, Pavlov, um, <clears throat> well, in Pavlov's studies, he simplified things for the dogs a little bit and made it so that, um, <clears throat> you know, he would give them meat powder whenever he clicked a metronome. Um, and so they came to associate the clicking of the metronome with the presence of meat powder in their mouth. And so soon, all they had to do was click the metronome and they would salivate, right? That they had learned this new reflex. Now, um, I know you know some of this stuff already, but, um, but I think it's important to look at uh, what all the different parts are because, um, <clears throat> and also where this terminology comes from, because people do sometimes get confused with the terminology. Um, the conditioned means it's learned, unconditioned means it's not learned, it's naturally occurring. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, a lot of things in abnormal psychology are going to go back to classical Pavlovian conditioning, including, you know, when we make associations with um, uh, the uh, sights and smells and sounds that were going on when we were experiencing something very frightening. And then soon later on, then, then later on, if we have any of those sights or smells or sounds, that can elicit some fear, right? Uh, classically conditioned fear. So, um, so that's going to come up a lot um, in this course, particularly when we're looking at things having to do with um, anxiety, um, uh, some with anger. We don't talk about anger as much as I would like to, but um, I'm sure I'll mention some things about anger as we go. But uh, and um, also some um, some patterns of sexual arousal and sexual behaviors and things like that. That uh, classical conditioning comes up a lot. Um, John Watson uh, was the American psychologist who really started the behavioral viewpoint uh, in psychology. And he did that by writing and um, publishing an article. It's a very short article. It's only like four pages long. And it's actually still worth reading if you are going into psychology. Um, it was published in the American Psychologist in um, 1913 called Psychology 
as the behaviorist views it. Uh, and in that paper, he argued that uh, psychology should really only be studying that which we can directly observe. And what we can directly observe is behavior. And so he argued that, um, that all that stuff uh, that Freud was trying to study, unconscious motivations and impulses and all this sort of stuff, if we can't measure it, if we can't observe it, then we really can't study it scientifically. And he says, so, you know, whether those things exist or not, they're not really the subject of scientific study. <clears throat> but behavior can be. We can study behavior. We can observe it. We can measure it. Um, we can uh, influence it in some ways, right? As far as we know, uh, John Watson was the first person to show classical conditioning in humans, and he did it with a uh, classical conditioning of an emotion, of a fear response in uh, Little Albert. I don't need to tell you the Little Albert story. Uh, I think that's covered in your textbook, and you probably also got it in general psych, but um, you know that was the one where they taught Little Albert to have a fear of white lab rats um, <clears throat> by classical conditioning. And remember that um, that little Albert developed this fear that he never had before, so he'd learned a fear, so it was a conditioned emotional response, um, and that fear also generalized to other things that were similar to white lab rats. Um, I believe they used a uh, um, a hand warmer, a fur, um, a white fur hand warmer, uh, a and also a um, like a fake Santa Claus beard or something like that, so white furry stuff. Um, <clears throat> And, um, and little Albert showed fear responses to those as well, right? Even though he didn't learn that fear, it had generalized uh, to them as well. Now, the, um, <clears throat> the other major kind of conditioning um, is on my next slide, slide 22, uh, operant conditioning, right? Um, <clears throat> and operant conditioning is based on uh, some studies by an American psychologist named E.L. Thorndike, Edward Thorndike. Uh, and Thorndike um, uh, did some studies with cats, uh, which allowed him to formulate what he called the law of effect. And I'm pretty sure you heard about the law of effect in your general psychology class. Um, that's the one where essentially um, uh, Thorndike said that behaviors that are followed by pleasant outcomes, a pleasant state of affairs or something is the way he phrased it, um, are liable to be repeated. And the flip side of that is that behaviors that are followed by unpleasant state of affairs are less likely to be repeated. And so there we've got the whole idea of the consequences of a behavior, what happens afterwards as a result of the behavior, affecting the future likelihood of that behavior. Right? That's basically the law of effect. Well, a later American psychologist named B.F. Skinner took that idea and ran with it. And he looked at um, the effect of consequences on behavior in a lot of different kinds of ways. Um, and, um, uh, and, and called this operant conditioning because the organism is operating on the environment. Um, the, the rat is pressing a bar and so it's getting a reward or, um, you know, the cat is escaping the puzzle box and so it's getting a reward or whatever it was. Um, and, um, uh, so B.F. Skinner, uh, studied a lot of ins and outs of operant conditioning. Now, on first glance, operant conditioning seems pretty easy, right? We got, um, we got reinforcers that strengthen a behavior, you know, like a reward. We got punishers that weaken a behavior. Yeah, that's easy. 
there's actually a lot of possibilities here. Um, and Skinner was able to study some of the interactions of some of those possibilities using animals in experimental equipment that we now call a Skinner box. So, you know, sometimes in real life, there may be more, there may be more than one contingency going on at the same time. Um, if I were to, uh, you know, eat um, a big old chocolate cake uh, all at once, I would enjoy that and I would be reinforced for it. But in a few minutes, I'm going to feel yucky and I'm going to be punished for it, right? And so which one of those um, is more likely to drive my behavior, right? Uh, so concurrent uh, schedules of uh, reinforcement and or punishment. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, so essentially here, uh, operant conditioning is about those consequences. Uh, just to be clear, I'm using the word consequence like Skinner did in a general sense. Sometimes people will kind of um, use the word consequence as if it only means something bad happening. Oh, if you do that, there will be consequences. But a reward strictly speaking, is a consequence too, right? It happens consequential to uh, the behavior. So uh, whether that behavior is uh, reinforcing or punishing. And also notice that I talk about reinforcers and punishers as being um, strengthening behavior or weakening behavior. Let me be clear about that. That doesn't just mean that it makes it more likely that that behavior is going to happen right now in the moment. Um, I eat this cake and I really enjoy it because it's yummy cake. When I say it strengthens the behavior, that means since I'm essentially rewarded for eating that cake, I'm going to be more likely to eat cake again in the future, right? So, so it's a lasting effect of, um, of that experience, not just right in the moment, but, um, but a strengthening of the behavior, making it more likely to happen in the future, or if it were punished, making it less likely to happen in the future. Okay, so um, uh, in addition to <clears throat> excuse me, uh, classical conditioning and operant conditioning, we do have another kind of learning in learning theory, and that's um, observational learning, uh, where essentially we can learn things mm, secondhand, vicariously. We can learn by observing other people. Those other people, who are referred to as models, are liable to be in classical or operant conditioning situations and we're learning, we can learn the same thing that they learn firsthand. Uh, and we can learn it secondhand by just observing them. If, um, if I were to stick a pocket knife into an electric socket, um, I would learn that that's a bad thing to do. If you saw me do that, you would learn the same thing by observational learning, right? I would learn it by classical conditioning. You would learn it by observational learning. But what you are learning is essentially the same um, uh, the same contingency, the same connection, that um, uh, if you were to do that same behavior, you would expect the same result. Um, that's what observational learning is all about. And so when it comes right down to it, observational learning is actually a fairly simple con uh, concept, but it's a hugely powerful one, because that means we don't have to make every mistake or do everything right in order to learn. We can learn from watching other people, right? It also uh, very much greatly expands on the explanatory power of behavioral approaches because, you know, yeah, there's probably examples of where people have learned fears or even clinical phobias through classical conditioning. You experience something uh, uh, that's very unpleasant and you associate it uh, later on with other things like it, right? You develop this fear. 
But you know, not everybody who has a fear or even a clinical phobia um, has had a firsthand bad experience with something. They may have seen somebody else have it or read about it in a novel or seen it in a movie. I mean, I've heard a lot of people lately say that they're afraid of clowns, murderous clowns. Where did this come from? Are a lot of people being chased by clowns and having bad experiences with clowns when they're kids? No, probably not. It's probably that they saw it in movies or read it in books or something like that, right? Uh, so observational learning. Now, when it comes to um, the explanatory power of behavioral approaches for looking at um, abnormal behaviors or mental illnesses, um, <clears throat> these are very powerful, but actually fairly direct and simple in a lot of cases. Um, essentially, the behavioral approach, if we go to slide 23, if you ask a behaviorist what causes a person to develop this particular mental illness, symptom, or whatever, their answer is often going to come back to learning. Essentially, that abnormal behaviors are learned by the same processes as normal behaviors. So what we know about how normal behaviors are acquired and maintained um, can inform us a lot on understanding how abnormal behaviors are acquired and maintained. Right? So we'll see many examples of uh, behavioral explanations of abnormality. Um, <clears throat> uh, one, um, one particular example that'll come up uh, in one of our first few chapters, since it has most to do with anxiety, is um, uh, two-process theory. This was uh, proposed by Maurer. Um, his name is probably later on when we look at um, this in more detail. But uh, just right now as an example, two-process theory for the acquisition and maintenance of a fear. Uh, now, acquisition and maintenance, those are important words. Acquisition meaning how that fear originally came about, so how it started. And maintenance, what keeps it going over time, right? Okay, so uh, two processes involved in acquisition and maintenance of a fear. The first part, the acquisition part, I think probably would seem pretty uh, straightforward. You know, if we think of any kind of um, classical conditioning kind of example where, I don't know, somebody gets... Um, Oh, well, let's let's say that um, somebody is riding in an elevator. They don't have a fear of elevators uh, yet, <laughs> but um, something really horrible happens. You know, the electricity goes out or uh, the elevator car gets stuck or it even seems to drop and all the lights are out and stuff like that. So by classical conditioning, um, you can probably see how uh, a person could come to associate elevators with fear, right? And um, they would uh, develop this fear of elevators even after that dangerous situation is over. Well, if classical conditioning was all we had, in a sense, you would um, expect that that person's fear of elevators would naturally start to subside, naturally extinguish, uh, it would weaken over time, because every other time that the person then goes on to ride elevators and nothing bad happens, well, you know, then that's weakening that association between elevators and fear, right? Uh, so an extinction process. But you probably already see what's the matter with that, right? Is that um, when people develop a real fear of something, they don't keep doing that thing. If somebody really did develop a fear of elevators by classical conditioning, they're going to tend to want to avoid elevators. And that's where the second part comes in, maintenance of the fear by operant conditioning. Now, what that would have to do with is, um, remember, operant conditioning is the consequence. 
And so uh, if, um, if a person has developed this fear of elevators, then um, the second part of this is that essentially every time that they avoid riding in elevators, they feel better. <laughs> and um, essentially they are rewarding themselves by negative reinforcement or relief uh, for avoiding elevators. I mean, imagine this person uh, thinking, okay, I've got to ride this elevator to the 23rd floor to meet with that lawyer lady, and um, I'm not taking all those stairs, so I'm going to get in the elevator. I'm going to do it. As that person gets closer to riding in the elevator, I mean, both physically closer and in closer in time, their fear, their sense of apprehension increases. Um, when they decide at the last minute, nope, I'm not going to ride the elevator. I'll just, you know, Skype with that lawyer and we'll just meet virtually. Um, uh, that they're going to get a sudden sense of relief. That fear goes away. Oh, I don't have to do it. And essentially what they've just done is essentially rewarded themselves by negative reinforcement uh, for avoiding that situation. So what this comes to is the idea that um, for, you know, a lot of fears, people tend to avoid the thing that they're afraid of and that that fear may actually be strengthening, I'm sorry, that avoidance may actually be strengthening the fear over time, right? That will certainly lead us to some treatment interventions, uh, which I'll um, probably cover in the next recording.